Hi everyone, I'm Darren Nair, the creator and host of Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We're currently taking an extended break right now because I'm dealing with health issues. We will be back once I have fully recovered. Thank you so much for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy and take care. Welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. We work to free hostages and the unjustly detained around the world. Together with their families, we share their stories every week and let you know how you can help bring them home. I'm Darren Nair, and I've had the honor of campaigning with many of these families for years. These are some of the most courageous and resilient people among us, people who have never given up hope, people who will never stop working to reunite their families. And we will be right there by their side until their loved ones are back home. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's meet this week's guest. Welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. Belgian citizen and American permanent resident Paul Rusa Sabagina has been detained in Rwanda since August 2020. Paul Rusa Sabagina is well known as the Hotel Rwanda hero. He protected the lives of around 1,200 people who sought refuge at the Hotel Melkoline in Kigali during the 1994 Rwandan genocide, where 800,000 members of the minority Tutsi and moderate Hutu population were murdered by the Hutu militia. Paul's acts of bravery were the inspiration for the Hollywood movie Hotel Rwanda. Paul left Rwanda in 1996 fearing for his safety and later became increasingly critical of the Rwandan government. He then founded an opposition political party called the Party of Democracy in Rwanda and in 2018 co-founded the Rwanda Movement for Democratic Change, a coalition of opposition groups. Paul was awarded the Medal of Freedom by former President of the United States, George W. Bush. On 27 August 2020, Paul Rousseau Sabagina was disappeared from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Four days later, the Rwanda Investigation Bureau announced that Paul was in their custody. This was an enforced disappearance. In other words, a kidnapping by the Rwandan authorities. During his detention, Paul's many basic human rights were violated. He was forced to go through an unfair trial and Paul was convicted of terrorism offences and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Many people have spoken out against this unfair trial and called for his release. On 23rd June 2021, members of the US Congress from both parties wrote a letter to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken saying the following. We write to convey our ongoing concerns with the continued detention of Mr. Paul Rusa Sabagina, a U.S. lawful permanent resident and Presidential Medal of Freedom honoree by the Rwandan government and to urge you to use all of the diplomatic means at your disposal to ensure his safe return to the United States. In a press statement issued by the U.S. State Department on 20th September 2021, spokesperson Ned Price stated the following. The United States is concerned by the government of Rwanda's conviction of U.S. lawful permanent resident Paul Rusa Sabagina on September 20th. The reported lack of fair trial guarantees calls into question the fairness of the verdict. We have consistently highlighted the importance of respect for all applicable legal protections throughout these proceedings 
and have raised concerns that these protections were not addressed in an impartial manner consistent with Rwanda's international commitments. A press release issued by Belgian Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs Sophie Wilmers also on 20th September 2021 stated the following. At the end of this judicial procedure, and despite repeated calls by Belgium, it has to be concluded that Mr. Rousseau Sebagina did not receive a fair and due trial, in particular with regards to the rights of defence. The presumption of innocence was not respected. These elements de facto call into question the trial and the verdict. Earlier this month, on September-October 2021, the European Parliament weighed into. They adopted a resolution that strongly condemned the illegal arrest, detention and conviction of Paul Rousseau-Sebagina, which violates international and Rwandan law. They consider the case of Mr. Rousseau-Sebagina to be exemplary of the human rights violations in Rwanda and calls into question the fairness of the verdict, which reportedly lacked guarantees of a fair trial in line with international best practices of representation, the right to be heard, and the presumption of innocence. This resolution adopted by the European Parliament calls for the immediate release of Mr. Rousseau-Sebagina on humanitarian grounds and for his repatriation without prejudice to his guilt or innocence. The resolution also calls on the Rwandan government to guarantee in all circumstances the physical integrity and psychological well-being of Mr. Rousseau-Sebagina and to allow him to take his usual medication insisting that the Rwandan government must respect the right of the Belgian government to provide consular assistance to Mr. Rousseau-Sebagina in order to ensure his health and proper access to defence. Amnesty International, the human rights charity, stated the following. Amnesty International noted numerous fair trial violations, including Rousseau-Sebagina's arrest under false pretenses and unlawful transfer to Rwanda and forced disappearance and incommunicado detention following his rendition to Rwanda. These fair trial violations must be effectively remedied. Human Rights Watch, another human rights organization, also released a statement on this. They said the following, The conviction of the Rwandan critic and political opponent Paul Rousseau-Sebagina comes after a flawed trial that is emblematic of the government's overreach and manipulation of the justice system. So for those of you who are keeping track, that's Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the European Parliament, the Belgium government, and the US government have all stated that Paul Rousseau-Sebagina was subject to an unfair trial. Paul's family say he is innocent and want the Rwandan government to release him and allow him to come back home immediately. We are joined today by Paul Rousseau-Sebagina's two daughters, Karine Kanimba, who is speaking to us from Belgium, and Anais Kanimba, who's speaking to us from the United States. Karina and Anais, I say this to my guests every week, and I mean it. We are very sorry for what you, your father, and your family are going through, and we'll do everything we can to help. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Darren. It's a, it's a pleasure for us to be here. Thank you for having Can you please walk us through what happened to your father? My father was traveling on a trip going to Burundi from San Antonio, Texas last August. Um, he was going to speak to a, a, a church congregation about truth and reconciliation. What he usually does uh, as his job, but he talks to uh, communities about truth and reconciliation and other um, and human rights. And so on his trip, he was invited by a, a bishop 
who we later found out works for the Rwandan government. And this bishop uh, tricked him to go to Dubai. And in Dubai, he was forced on his plane to go to uh, where he thought he was going to Burundi and instead brought him to Kigali. On the plane, he was drugged. And then upon arrival, in the, he, when he woke up, he found out he was in Kigali. Uh, and that's when he, we found out that he tried to, you know, to, to scream and to get the support of the, of the airplane, um, uh, hostess and, uh, and, and the pilot who actually were in the plan with the Roman authorities. And he was bound, blindfolded, uh, dragged on the tarmac of the Rwandan airport, Kigali airport, and brought to a torture house for four days, uh, where my father was able to tell us later on uh, what they did to him. And so they tortured him for those four days. He was incommunicado. Our family was looking for him everywhere. We were sending him messages, but we, he was not responding until we woke up on August 31st, Monday, uh, seeing images of him handcuffed, paraded in front of the Rwandan Investigation Bureau, being called a terrorist and, and saying that they were going to put him on trial. And so that was a shock to our family. And that's when our um, life completely changed and was turned upside down. Uh, and our family has been uh, doing everything we can in our power to find a way to get reunited with him. Can you also talk to us about the conditions of his detention and violation of his rights? Yes. So um, from the moment he he arrived in Rwanda, as Anais explained, his rights had already been violated. The conditions of which he was being held from the torture to the drugging to the uh, dra being dragged and thrown, uh, being mis mistreated, um, all of it already amounts to both psychological and physical torture. Um, however, upon um, after August 31st, he was paraded in front of the media and then brought to the Rwandan Investigation Bureau. And um, from that moment, he was denied of all his basic rights as, a, as an accused. So his rights to defense, um, he was denied access to the, his legal uh, represent, the representation of his choice. We have an international team of lawyers that have been uh, including some lawyers that were already representing him before um, the kidnapping who have been denied access to him. He was held in solitary confinement for over 250 days. And according to the, uh, uh, to, this is a violation of the UN Nelson Mandela rule, which states that holding someone in solitary confinement for more than 15 consecutive days amounts to psychological torture. So he was held in solitary confinement for 250 days. He was was denied his medication. Um, the Belgian diplomatic, uh, the B Belgian embassy um, brought him his medication via the diplomatic uh, suitcase. The medication was delivered to the prison, but the Rwandan prison authorities refused to give him his medication. And so not only is he being held in solitary confinement, he's being denied the right to, to his attorneys, attorneys of his choosing. He's being denied his rights to his medication. And he's also, he was also denied access to his case file um as is in he cannot read 
or know actually the case against him because they're not refusing him even that right. Um, and so there has been a continuation of, of things that have happened, of human rights violations and abuses that have happened to him up until the point that this July, um, they decided to actually stop giving him food for three days because they wanted to force him to, to participate in the, in the court proceedings, which he had decided no longer to take part in. So the human rights violations that my father has faced since his kidnapping um, is a long, long, long list. And uh, unfortunately, this is the reason why we advocate for his life and his rights every single day. Now, you mentioned that they didn't give him his medication. I understand your father is a cancer survivor who suffers from several chronic medical conditions as well. Is that right? He had cancer and, you know, he's been, you know, uh, it's been now almost three years that he hasn't been able to, it's going to be three years that he hasn't been able to do a cancer screening because of COVID and uh, the last year in prison in Kigali. You know, those conditions in which he's been living in Kigali also are conducive to people with uh um, cancer in the past. He also, to come back, he also has hypertension. He's had hypertension for a very long time and they uh, wouldn't allow him to get his actual medication. So what happened really to him is that when he arrived in Kigali, after this, the, these four days where he was being tortured, he lost 10 kilograms in, I think, couple days. Um, he was very, very weak. He was brought to the hospital and then the doctor made a lot of tests on him and he told them already what was happening and they forced him to take this new medication there. And ever since then, they've never really allowed him to take what he needs to take. And he's been weaker every, every, every time, ever since, ever since he gets very dizzy. You know, the doctors there recommend to get, um, more fruit and water when he feels dizzy and sick. And so instead he has his medication. Like, so we've been, it's been a battle and something very concerning to us. And the fact that my father is 67 years old also doesn't help uh, because the, the conditions, the, the, the prison conditions in Rwanda are very, very bad. And it's actually one of the worst prison systems in the world. So when was the last time you got to speak to your father? Yes, I would add that um, the, we're, we're very lucky to have to be able to hear his voice even though it's only five minutes um but that is also telling of the conditions that he's being held under the fact that he can only speak five minutes to his family um and that within those five minutes we feel like um the the calls are are monitored he is not speaking at ease there are people uh prison guards around him and so we're we're very grateful for those calls but we are um constantly we continue to be worried every day because we know that um, this is not a safe conditions and, and there's nothing that the Rwandan authorities, uh, thus far the Rwandan authorities have shown that they um, do not care about his human rights. And so we worry every single day, even after we speak with him. Have you got a sense of how he is based on your conversations with him? Is he putting on a brave face for yourselves or how is he coping? Yes, he is. You know, he's our dad. He's uh, he doesn't want um, to 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 scare us, and so he and so he he tries to stay strong. But the reality also is that we know the calls are monitored, so he cannot be fully frank and and tell us really how he's doing and tell us all the difficulties that are happening. And so you know, we everything is okay when we speak with him. But so we have to kind of get through, and we 
get through um, uh, his voice and try to understand. We had to communicate and code the word sometimes to my mom and him so they can we can fully get how he's feeling. Um, but I would say, you know, overall, he, he tries to stay as strong as he can. He's very, very, and I'm amazed about his strength so far. And I think that's what also keeps us going uh, when it's hearing his voice and hearing his strength. Um, yeah, yeah. So you spoke about your communications with him. Now, I understand, Corrine, your phone was hacked using the Pegasus surveillance software created by the NSO group. And it was, I believe, Amnesty International that helped you identify this. Could you talk us through a bit about this? In July of 2020, um, the, the, for Amnesty International's security lab, in a collaboration with the collective of journalists called Forbidden Stories, um, published a detailed report of the uh, Pegasus software, the Pegasus infection in my phone. And um, they showed that since January of 2021, my phone had been continuously infected with the Pegasus software. They were able to give us a detailed um, timeline of the times when the software was active in my phone. Um, and that included the moment we were meeting with the Belgian foreign minister, Sophie Wilmes, about my father's case. That included times when we were talking with our lawyers, with my father's international legal team about his defense. That included times when we were communicating with our family about going to have some dinner and food. So they have been able to track our location, listen to our calls, listen to read our exchanges. And we know it's the Rwandan government because not only is it that um, this is the same people that have broken into our home before, that have attempted to assassinate my father before, it, that have kidnapped my father, tortured him and made him face everything that we've seen happening to him this year. Um, so the fact is, the fact that they've infected my phone and tracked of my every communication is a violation of my human rights and my privacy and our family and our security. Um, but it is also a violation of my father's rights to defense, of my father's security. And it is a demonstration of the Rwandan tactics, of the methods that they use to try to not only intimidate people, to try to stop people, to try to silence critics, to silence people who are advocating for like two daughters advocating for their father's rights. Um, these are tactics that they use. And so I think um, uh, the, the the fact that they've tapped our communications and, and kept, a tri kept an eye on all of this shows again that they don't believe in, in the legitimacy of this trial and, and what's happening to my father because they're trying to intercept our family and, and our efforts to bring him home. That uh, when we found out Karin's phone was uh, was hacked by this malware, you know, it reminded us of our like kind of our father's like life before he was kidnapped. You know, our father was always concerned of being listened to and being followed. You know, and you know, we didn't fully understand the extent to which the Rwandan government does that. But then the Rwandan government actually, when we tell that how he got kidnapped and what happened and the steps, but the means of which the great lengths of which they did, they were following. His is step by step in, in San Antonio, Texas. So the Rwandan authorities are tracking my father on U.S. soil and they know when he went to get his tests, his COVID tests before traveling. And you, and you hear the the head of the investigation, the, like the FBI of Rwanda, kind of speaking about it in the New York Times, like gleefully and happily and proud to be surveilling 
you know, a person on UI soil. And I just wanted to highlight that because this is really the big problem that a lot of uh, Rwandan face, a lot of people like my father and now here, you know, any dissident and others and look at what happened to my father. And we need to make sure that people are aware that this is happening because we need to make it stop. You know, we need to protect. And so these kind of things, what happened to my father doesn't happen to others and what happened to my sister and our family doesn't happen to others as well. So the Rwandan government was spying on a, a U.S. permanent resident on U.S. soil. Is that what you're saying? Yes, because of the 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 the, um, the Rwandan investigation bureau, head of the investigation bureau, told the New York Times. And we've seen the consequences. We've seen what happens. I mean, our father has been kidnapped in front of the international community. He was dragged across international borders in violation of the international law. He was denied all his human rights. He was tortured and he had been spied on. Now I'm being spied on. I've been tracked. Is this what's going to happen to me? So you're campaigning for your father and you find out that your phone has been hacked by the Rwandan government. And this is a surveillance software that is very hard to detect and has been recording all your phone inputs, your passwords, usernames, your emails. What do you do once you've found out that you have this uh, software on your phone? So it's, I have had to change everything. So first I was very scared. We were already scared because of, again, what's happened to our father, but um, we've, I've had to change all my methods of communications. I've had to go through great lengths to ensure that, um, that the way that we're trying to protect my father, to advocate for my father doesn't get intercepted and that we can in fact create, bring, build strategies and talk to the people, the individuals that can help us bring him home without, um, without being intercepted by others who are trying to, or trying to do the opposite. And so we've had to change our methods of communication. Um, and it, this has also slowed us down because part of this, um, the struggle of bringing our father home is advocating for him, uh, on, on social media. So that means using our phones to, because we know that the Rwandan has a very strong propaganda, the Rwandan government has a very strong propaganda machine. They have not only invested millions into spying on me via the Pegasus software and our family, but they have also invested a lot of money into trolls and social media, uh, trolls to, um, um, to make our father lose credibility, to attack anyone who speaks up on our behalf, on our on our father's behalf, and um, and so part of our struggle, our family's um, challenge, has been to advocate for him on those platforms, and on those plat, and that means using our phones, our our technology to do so. And the moment that they hacked my phone and that we've had to change all these methods. This also took time away from the efforts that we would have been putting into advocating for my father's release. And so I've, we've had to change our methods of communication. We've had, we've been slowed down. We've been backed up. However, it has not discouraged us and it has not intimidated us because um, we believe and we've seen how uh, the power of propaganda, the power of intimidation into silencing people, and we will not be silenced. Now, I talked briefly about your your father's background in my monologue. Could you let us know more about your father? Yes. 
Um, so in 1994, um, you may have heard of the movie Hotel Rwanda, uh, which is based on, on his life. Um, it's a, it's a portrayal of his bravery during the genocide. Um, during the 1994 genocide, he saved more than 1,200 people in the Hotel de Mille Collines by sheltering them, by, um, using everything, the little resources at his disposal to protect them, um, and to risk his own life in order to ensure that not a single one of these refugees at the hotel um, would be killed. And after the, the genocide, the, the, um, the, there was a movie made about his life called Hotel Rwanda. Um, he was portrayed by Don Cheadle. And that gave him a, different, a new platform internationally. Not only had he saved people in the genocide, he had been advocating for peace in the 90s in Rwanda. But after the movie was released, he also gained an, an added a bigger platform where he was able to continue to bring attention to the genocide and the lessons that he learned and that all the Rwandans learned during the genocide. But also he used his platform to advocate for human rights, for the people whose human rights were being violated and are still being violated today by the Rwandan government. Um, he was recognized internationally by various organizations, by various individuals and, um, and human rights groups and governments for his bravery and his advocacy for human rights. That did not please the, pres the current president of, of, uh, of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, because he saw our father as a person who was exposing um, his crimes, who was using his platform and the attention to call attention, to, uh, the world's attention to the human rights abuses being perpetrated by the Rwandan government on the Rwandan people and the people of the Great Lakes region of Africa. And, um, and so he sought to silence him. He started off by calling him a genocide denier, which is a crime in Rwanda. But our father had just made a movie about the genocide and talked about it all the time. And he saved people during the genocide. And he truly has been teaching lessons about the genocide. So it was difficult for the Rwandan government to pin that onto him. But the goal there was to discredit him. That did not work. So then they started coming up with more lies to try to make it look like he was, he hadn't saved people during the genocide, that the whole story was made up, but it was just a way to discredit him and make him lose that platform. Then they started accusing him of funding rebel groups in the Congo. They manufactured Western Union receipts, which they brought to the U.S. authorities and the Belgian authorities. This was in 2010. Um, however, the U.S. authorities and the Belgian authorities at the studying those receipts and those uh, at th that information brought to them by the Rwandans, um, they concluded that in the moment of those transfers, the Western Union transfers that the Rwandan claims were made by my father, my father had been in Ireland when the Rwandans said that he had been in Texas for those transfers. So the date and the location of, of those, of what the Rwandans wanted to bring against him did not match. And the U.S. obviously never arrested him. The Belgians never did because this was a continuation of the Rwandan government continuing to try to silence our father to discredit him. And so after that, there were that did not work either. So they tried to assassinate him. They broke into our home in Belgium. Um, they followed him at conferences, at, um, at events, at schools, universities. They tried to stop him. They tried to kill him. But every time he knew that people had been silenced, people had been killed, people had been victims of this government, and he had the platform and he had the voice and the attention to call to bring it the and the the opportunity to bring attention to them and that's what he did and so he continued
continued to speak up for the people who are being victim victimized by this government. You mentioned an assassination attempt. They broke into your home in Belgium. Was he given a protection detail? After that assassination attempt. So after the assassination attempt and the times that uh, people broke into our homes and we know that these people were Rwandans because they were, you know, stealing documents in Kenya, Rwanda and no valuable things. My father and our family informed the authorities, the Belgian authorities. And so they'd been aware that the people were following him and uh, were after our family. Uh, they provide some security around, but, you know, we live under, you know, this dictatorship and this, and the fact that Kagame was after him, and this is a government that's after a person, it's very difficult to have security all the time and you have to be able to live. And so, Yes, there was some security around after, but uh, it's been over. It's our whole life that they've been we've been uh, they've been following our family and following my father, and so um, my father can try his best. He wears bulletproof jackets when he was giving speeches because of the security. He always made the maximum that he could, but um, unfortunately, you know, the government of the Rwanda is is a powerful thing, and so uh, they kidnapped him in the end. And that's what they were been wanting to find to do. So it's clear that the Rwandan government appears to want to silence your father because he's a political opponent and he's been vocal about the Rwandan government's human rights abuses. And they're also trying to silence other people and make them feel afraid to speak out. So when your father was taken, you launched a public campaign to free your father. And obviously there's a risk to your own security and your own safety if you go public with this. So can you talk to us about your decision to go public and what you did? You know, we didn't have a choice to be able to do this. You know, we were in these early days, like what kind of, one of the main thing that we've seen with the support in the media is that things were changing. And, you know, for instance, uh, in May, the ABC uh, News wrote an article about the condition in which my father was the detention. That prompted the prison to allow my father to call us and then a couple of days later, we saw that my father was out of solitary confinement. So, sorry, and so, so we've seen that, that, uh, the media, the Rwandan authorities respond to the media. And so that's why we wanted to make, to go public. But really, you know, it was not our choice, but we've seen that it's been the greatest tool, uh, to use against dictator, to raise awareness, to where is at for our advocacy support. We're just one family. And now we are so blessed to have, uh, a lot of people supporting us uh, through this raising awareness. Yes, and I would also add, um, if I may, the the fact that part of what we've learned as well while advocating for our father are those methods that dictatorships like the Rwandan government, like the Rwandan dictatorship uses. Um, and that includes the propaganda machine that I, I mentioned earlier. Um, they have a strong propaganda machine and part of that is to try to make this, their, their story stick, to try to discredit our father. And that was all with the intention of misleading the public of misleading the public and the international community about who our father is. Our father is a hero who saved 1,200 people during the genocide and has been recognized for it internationally. He has been doing just that, talking about the, the genocide for over 20 years and trying to bring hope and, and peace and reconciliation to the region. And this is the image that Kagame wanted to destroy. He did so via propaganda and PR machines that we know he also 
puts a lot of money into. And so by going out publicly and trying to discredit our father um, and using the media as a way of trying to make our, um, to, to destroy our father's image and allow him to, and not allow him to have any support internationally um, is the way that uh, is a strategy that they use and is a method of the, of dictatorships. And so, um, and so p- part of going public ourselves, was in order to, um, and while Anais mentioned, said that it wasn't out of choice because it's the way that they began this, this, this struggle upon kidnapping our father and parading him in front of the media. But part of the struggle is to advocate for him publicly, to let them know what the truth is, to show the world who our father truly is, what his mission has been, what his work has been about, and to try to bring attention to not only the way he's being treated in Rwanda, prison, but as a demonstration and as a symbol to the way other political prisoners are treated in Rwanda, to the way other journalists and critics are treated in Rwanda. So this is uh, this idea of being public and advocating loudly and publicly for him is a way of standing up to these abuses and, and these types of abuses that are continuously and systematically being perpetrated by the Rwandan government. The U.S. government has released statements what else can they do to help bring your father home? So the U.S. government, yes, has released some statements, uh, and we're very grateful of the statement that they've released because they've provided uh, a level of validity, kind of a third-party validity that our family needed to continue our advocacy, specifically around the outcome of the verdict and, and based on the due process, like you read earlier. Um, you know, the U.S. government, I wish that they could, you know, act faster, communicate faster with us to f- see how we're going to move the efforts you know where we we have started working with them and you know ambassador Carstens, uh, who's a special presidential envoy for hostage affair and wrongful detainees has taken our case and is supporting us and so we have that one level of um of uh of uh let's say level like of, of hope that we will be able to see my father but it doesn't mean that it's not a massive government it doesn't mean that things sometimes get in the way and when i when we learned that we had actually the opportunity to meet secretary blinken uh and among other families of our wrongful detention hostages in early in february when he just started his appointment you know and they really told us that uh our issues was going to be the priority you know and that's when i met and saw many other families many other people who were in a similar position and some people in Iran, in Russia, in China, in Venezuela, and often their case have been, you know, prompt and uh, kind of pushed away because of policy issues that, that the United States has uh, with those countries, you know, and having Secretary Blinken tell us that next to Ambassador Carson's uh, that this was going to be, our issues was going to be their priority, it reassured us. But unfortunately, you know, um, right now we have not seen a lot of people come back home, only one person from the United States. So we hope that it's actually going to happen. And so, and I personally, in a selfish way, you know, I hope that 
uh, we don't end up in the same situation as other families. So I sympathize a lot. And that's why we need to continue to encourage the State Department and the US government to really fulfill their promise to us. And but also to raise awareness about the issues of hostages uh, and wrongful detainees around the world, because it's by people knowing what's happening to our families and to other people in similar situation like us that the, the government is really going to uh, be even more encouraged to do this. And so I'm so really pleased that you we're having this podcast with you that we can tell you about what's happening to us because I know many other families are in a similar situation and we need to really raise awareness because that's how, you know, the government reacts and we've seen the domino effect, you know, when organizations and people get together, mobilized and the government reacts and fulfills its promises. So it's not by the lack of not wanting to support us, but I think sometimes other things go in the way and we need to make sure that those things don't go in the way and many families are in a situation. I absolutely agree. In fact, uh, I have interviewed many of those families on this podcast. I interviewed the son of Kai Lee, the American held in China, the parents of Trevor Reed held in Russia, the sister of Paul Whelan held in Russia. I interviewed the daughter of Tomio Vadel held in Venezuela, the Sitco Six. And uh, next week I'll be interviewing Mariam Kamalmas, the daughter of Majid Kamalmas held in Syria. So I, I, I've met many of these families, I've interviewed them, so I completely understand your situation. Now, your father is also a Belgian citizen. What can the Belgian government do to help free your father? So I'd say as well that um, we we believe that the international pressure and the support surrounding the trial and the lack of fairness in the trial and the way our father has been treated, the outcry surrounding the way he's been treated has been very impactful in not only um, holding the, the leaders in Europe accountable um, to their citizens, but also accountable to the principles principles by which the, the country is governed, the principles that we learned as children in kindergarten about equality, justice, and peace. And our, a lot of our advocacy this year has been reminding the leaders of our world, of Europe and the US and Africa across the world, that reminding them of the principles by that they taught us as young children and um what we know today and what we hope um what we know is possible is that there are political avenues our father is a political prisoner this is not about justice this is not about the just the terrorism tri trial like the Rwandan government wants to to make it out to be this is about um our fathers of political prisoners and we know that there are political avenues to bring him home um for instance we know that there are levers that they can pull whether it is to put visa sanctions on the members who we know are directly responsible to for kidnapping our father uh we know that there are um things that the, the Rwanda is interested in and that Belgium also has been discussing with Rwanda, um, whether it's from a cooperation level, whether it's about judicial cooperation. There are many political avenues. We as children are doing our best to remind those leaders that they have those tools at their disposal to protect and ensure the rights of their citizens and their residents. And so what we hope they'll do is that we hope they'll use those political avenues and we hope that they will bring our father home before it's too late. I know the EU parliament has recently adopted the resolution. I read out a few of their statements in the monologue. Um, what else should they be doing to help free your father and bring him back home? 
So the EU was, we're so grateful that the EU stood up and called for our father's immediate release and repatriation back home. Um, however, now is the, is the time that we have to hold them accountable. We have to hold them to their words. They signed a resolution. I think it was six, six, uh, 660 votes out of 680 with 18 abstentions. Um, and, um, and I think that's a very strong majority. And, and, um, and we know that there is the political will. Um, now we'll, we know that in next week there is going to be a summit in Kigali, which involves the African Union and the European Union. So members of uh, the foreign ministries of both continents will be meeting in Kigali, and we hope that they will use that opportunity to bring attention to our father's case. We hope that he will be part of the conversation, and we hope that um, he will come home after that. And and we hope that not only for our father, but also also for the many other victims of this regime, people who are held illegally in Rwanda, who are detained illegally. I think the American Bar Association and the Clooney Foundation for Justice detailed in their report the fair trial violations in my father's case. But in the meantime, we've seen the exact same violations in the case of Ida Manye, this other a YouTuber currently jailed in Rwanda illegally. There is the case of Imabru Karasira, another YouTuber who was jailed because he spoke on YouTube. So, and he was also, he, they, those two were also subjected to the same fair trial violations that our father was being, is being uh, subjected to. So this is about, um, about holding Rwanda accountable to its citizens and, and responsible for violating the rights of their citizens. And we hope that that the EU-AU summit that will happen in Kigali next week um, will be then um, an opportunity to, to bring all these issues forward and hopefully bring our father home. You've mentioned that the Commonwealth can also help. What can they do? So Rwanda is actually interestingly going to be the representative represent the Commonwealth and the uh, um, starting this it was actually supposed to start in 2020, but it's officially supposed to happen in the near future. And so at the Chogem, once the Chogem event happened, Rwanda will be representing the Commonwealth. And Rwanda and the Commonwealth stands on the principle of justice, human rights, and democracy. And Rwanda does not do that. And we've seen this specifically with my father's trial. And my father's trial has exhibited that there's no justice, there's no fair trial in Rwanda. And the other cases that Karine has just said. So, you know, by, uh, we want to advocate toward other Commonwealth head of states and countries to reconsider the appointment of Rwanda as the next uh, head of uh, head of the Commonwealth, but also consider also going to Rwanda and, and instead asking for changes in this country. And Karine's going to tell a little bit about some of our effort in the UK because you know, in addition to all these people going to to Kigali, and we would like to kind of similar to uh, this meeting happening with the ministers of foreign affairs of the EU going to uh, to Kigali with the with the African Union, we would love the support of these other Commonwealth health states to ask President Kagame to release my father, but also to remind him of the true value of the Commonwealth, which is the rule of law. And that has not happened with my father's trial. And now the Minister of Justice, who participated, actively participated in breaking all these laws and, you know, and infringing on my father's rights is 
appointed to become the next uh, min, uh, ambassador of Rwanda to to the to the UK. And Karen has been leading our efforts there, trying to raise awareness about what about his uh, new appointment. Yes. Yeah, so the the Justice Minister um, of Rwanda, Johnston Musinge, was um, appointed was nominated as the next Rwandan ambassador to the UK. Um, and unfortunately, he is the same Justice Minister that admitted on an interview, accidentally admitted on an interview with on Al Jazeera, that he that the Rwandan government had paid for the flight that the the plane that kidnapped our father. They he admitted as the justice minister that he was intercepting our father's um, uh, confidential communications and documents with his lawyers, which should be respected by attorney-client privilege. Um, and he admitted to, to, to just violating fair trial, um, the rights to a fair trial. And as not only a justice minister, but also as a representative of the Rwandan government, we believe that he should not be the, be the next ambassador of Rwanda to the UK and that the UK should not accept accept his nomination because he's not a good representation of the rule of law by which the Commonwealth institutions live by and so um, and and respect. And so our goal and our hope is that he will not be nominated. um, He will not be accepted as the next ambassador. And we hope that this will also bring more pressure from the United Kingdoms and the Commonwealth institutions on Rwanda in order for Rwanda to respect the rule of law and um, in, if they want to c- continue their membership in the Commonwealth in, in the Commonwealth na- of Nations and um, and so part of our efforts in the UK has been to raise awareness on the reality of the of the issues in Rwanda but also the reality of what is happening with our father's case and the, this justice minister's role in the kidnapping and violation of our father's rights so you've got some decent media coverage. I've seen the Times of London editorial calling your father a prisoner of conscience and calling for his uh, release. What can the journalists and news media do to help bring your father home? So the we believe that continuing, as Anais uh, laid out well earlier, is that um, so far our father is alive because there is attention on this case. Many Rwandans are not so lucky. Many other victims of this government are not so lucky because they are quickly forgotten and they are no longer spoken about and the the Rwandan government does whatever they want with him in the prisons. And so we believe that continuing to pay attention to what is happening to our father's case, to continue to report on it and to continue to ask questions not only the governments of Belgium, the governments of the US, the Commonwealth, members of the Commonwealth and the Rwandan government to hold them accountable for the way that they're treating a human being is a way to keep his his name alive, to keep him alive, to keep to continue to have people talk about him. And we hope, and thus far, the media has been our strongest ally in keeping him alive. And we hope that they will continue to pay attention to his story. But most importantly, question those government those individuals in power on to what are the, their next actions their next steps and um and in term in our father's case and as it relates to the rwandan dictatorship and i would like to add you know like it will help us our family to reunite with our father by continuing the attention to our our our, our case 
but it will also reunite many other families whose loved ones are illegally detained in Rwanda. By really exposing and showing what's happening to the justice system, talking about this other side of Rwanda people didn't want to talk about, you know. Rwanda has been the darling of the West for the last 20 years, and one of these contributors has been the positive um, the positive reporting on Rwanda, which is, does not really represent everything that's happening. And this dark side of our country is the reality, and it's a bigger reality than people realize. And so by continuing reporting on this, it will help her father, but it will also help the other hundreds of thousands of Rwandans living under the dictatorship, but also the people illegally detained and who are in the same situation as my father. So you mentioned that Rwanda has been a darling of the West for the last 20 years. Is that because they feel guilty for not intervening sooner during the Rwandan genocide? Yes, and and I would also add that um, it's, it's certainly the guilt, the the guilt question, and Rwanda, the Rwandan government, and the, the dictator of Rwanda has successfully exploited that guilt over the over the past one. 27 years, you know, both Anais and I's biological parents were, were killed during the genocide. Um, we were very, very lucky and fortunate to have been adopted by Paul Rusasabegina and his and his, and our mom, Tatiana Rusasabegina, who have raised us as their own children. And we grew up learning not only the importance of, of, um, uh, the values of reconciliation, the truth and, and peace. This has been those strong pillars in our family and something that our father has consistently um, made an important aspect of our um, communication in life. And um, part of this guilt that Rwanda has successfully um, uh, exploited over the past 27 years is what has allowed, 27 years is what has allowed, uh, has made it difficult for other powers, whether it's journalists or other governments who have criticized the Rwandan government's human rights abuses, um, it's given Kagame an opportunity and the Rwandan government an opportunity to silence them as well by bringing up what happened in 1994. And by rather than talking about progress and reconciliation and truth and the, 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 the conversation that needs to be had among the Rwandan people, they focused on exploiting that guilt of the outside of the West. And every time somebody bring, brought up those criticisms, they were silenced and said, where were, well, where were you in 1994? And so to conclude this, then in a way to counter this, in a way to make it right in for the Rwandan people, because those are the ones who are suffering the most out of this is to make, is to report accurately on what is happening in Rwanda. It means to call, to bring up, to talk, not only to talk about the success of Rwanda, yes, but also talk about those people who are being mistreated, who are being marginalized, who, and those are the people who my father had been talking about for the past 20 years. And that is why he's being, he's illegally detained. That's why he was kidnapped. And that's why he's facing all this is because he was calling attention to what this government has done and um and this in the same way that um that uh, and and just to conclude then the reporting of the way of what's happening in rwanda ties into the story that needs to be told in its entirety yes 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 i think that's a major i mean it's 
I believe from my, you know, my, my position as a, uh, a young 29 year old, you know, like my awareness of the geopolitics, it's really, I think it's really the, the fact that the, the world feels this guilt of not helping our country during the genocide. And they've really helped and allowed Kagame to become this big figure. And, and this is where we are today. You know, he's been the benevolent dictator, but they never, or authoritarian, but they haven't, this guy's winning by 99%, you know, and for some reason, other, other, the was doesn't work with other dictators who win by 99%. I'm very sorry to hear about what happened to your biological parents. Every one of you has gone through significant amount of trauma and yet you're strong and resilient where do you find that strength and because the reason i ask is a lot of people in many parts of the world have had similar experiences or going through tough times so where do you find the resilience how how do you continue to stay strong and i know part of it is because you don't really have a choice uh, you want to free your father, but is there anything you can talk about as in where, where do you find the strength is, is my question really. Um, maybe I'll, I'll start. Um, I would say that our father has been a role model for us for, for as long as we've been in his life and he's been in ours in that in the way that he dealt with the, the, the genocide perpetrators during the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, that he, for 75 days, every single day, he woke up with the knowledge and the goal of saving the, the people in the hotel until the next day and until the next day and the next day. And he never lost hope. Even as the entire, the hotel was surrounded by people who wanted to come in and kill every single one of the people he was protecting. He never lost hope and he continued, who woke up every day with the goal of making sure that the next day they're still alive and they're still breathing. And that is because he believes that everyone within our hearts have some place that is warm and that is peaceful and that is loving and that can be reached. And in our attitude, at least I would speak for myself and I'll let Anaï speak as well. But the way that I see it is that all of us, everyone in the world has that place in their heart. And this is thanks to our father who taught us this is that we can reach out to people. We can extend to people and tomorrow will be a better day if we truly believe and hope. And, um, and I think this is the attitude that we've taken in this struggle for him is that we believe that we hope we have belief in people, in the goodness of humanity, in the goodness of people. And we believe that tomorrow will be another day and a better one than, than yesterday. And we will continue to do so until for as long as we can. And hopefully we'll see our father home and we'll continue to, to leave um, peacefully and, and happily. Yeah. And I think Karen said it pretty well. Uh, what I would add, you know, you said something at the beginning of your question that, you know, this is something a lot of family has gone through and one of the things in the world and you know and uh illegal detention dictatorship and one thing people too is death they didn't kill him in dubai when they found they decided to bring him to rwanda so they gave him a chance to life and so because they gave him the chance to life you know we also it, i think it drives me it helps me because i know you know we still have another chance and so I can continue. And then 
like Karin said, reaching out to people. We reached out that hand and we said we needed help. And people came to us. Stranger came to us. And all of that humbles you and reminds you that you're not alone in this world. And actually, there's more good than bad in this world. And so um, that really keeps you going. It makes it wakes you up. You know, you wake up, you get out of bed because you know that somewhere, somebody, somebody signed a petition for my dad so he could get freed. Somebody, you know, asked their congressman to call their, their senators to, to help my dad. And so that really just drives me and helps me and give me, keeps me going. And that's really the love of people. And, and you, you realize that when you're sometimes in this worst time of your life, that there is humanity. So what can the public do to help? Um, you can, uh, there are many ways that people can help um, to bring our father home. Uh, you can start by visiting our website, which is hrrffoundation.org. And um, you can also go on our Twitter page and our uh, Facebook to follow what, we're, what, what is happening with my father's case uh, on the Free Recessa Begina website. Um, you can also contribute to um, via Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, you know, as I mentioned, uh, propaganda and, and, and um, this, uh, deciphering this propaganda is part of, of the important strategy in, in, in making sure that the truth remains, that the truth is told. And talking about uh, this, our father's um, situation on using the hashtag free recessa begina brings attention to his case and allows leaders and others who are are in a position to take direct action um, within their, their their leadership positions and to help bring our father home. So talking about him in on different platforms, uh, groups is important to keep him alive and to continue to bring attention to his case. Um, but you can also contribute to our legal defense fund. You know, we're a small family and we are dealing with the government that it has unlimited resources and um, we have has not been easy on in trying to maintain all of the costs of keeping the campaign. And we have a, a partnered with Legler Aid, which is um, this nonprofit that helps us um, raise funds for our uh, legal defense fund. And um, we can also share the, the website is also the link is also available on the Free Recessa Begina website. And so this is another way that anyone listening can contribute to um, the struggle to bringing our father home. So Karina and Anna we're almost at the end of our interview. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? I'd say thank you. Thank you for, for, for having us on the, on the podcast. Thank you for sharing our father's story. Thank you for keeping him alive. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to share more about his story and, and our father's life. And, uh, and we hope that perhaps we'll have another podcast with him um, when he's home. Yes. Now, I think I want to echo Karen too. I want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to raise awareness about this really horrible situation. Like you say, you've spoken to other families and it's so important that you continue doing what you do because the world needs to know that people are hostages, people are wrongfully detained. Governments are using people to get to their own gains and it's unfair and it needs to stop. And so thank you for being a voice behind this. You're very welcome. It's an honor to help. As I said at the beginning of the podcast in my intro, the people I speak to like yourselves are amazing people, courageous and resilient people. 
Um, so I'm honored to help. As I said at the beginning, we're very sorry for what your family is going through and we'll do everything we can to help. We'll be right here by your side until your father is back home. Thank you, Corrine and Anais for joining us. I hope to speak to your father on the next podcast episode soon. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> wow, I hope so too. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We're not just a podcast, we're a community. If you're on Twitter and would like to post a message of solidarity to the families or have any questions for us, please tweet it using the hashtag Pod Hostage Diplomacy and we'll get back to you. If you like what we're trying to do, please do consider supporting the show financially. You can do this using the support the show link in the description of this podcast episode. We're grateful for any contributions, no matter how small. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week. Take care.